With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption in logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com insights. Interested in taking a deep dive each week into a compliance or compliance-related topic? Then Compliance Into the Weeds is the podcast for you. Join Matt Kelly, the coolest guy in compliance, and Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, as they go into the weeds to flesh out a story which you can use to better inform your compliance program. Both you and your compliance program will be the better for listening to this podcast. Compliance Into the Weeds is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. In this episode, Matt Kelly and I take up the Supreme Court decision in Lou versus the Securities and Exchange Commission. It dealt with the SEC's ability to demand profit disgorgement in uh, fraud cases. Uh, we take a look at the decision, the Supreme Court's upholding that right, and what it might mean for and what it might mean for FCPA compliance and enforcement going forward. Hello, everyone. Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, back again with Matt Kelly, the coolest guy in compliance. And today we are going to take a deep dive into the legal realm as we are going to take up the yesterday's or recent, I suppose I should say, Supreme Court decision in Lou versus Securities and Exchange Commission, uh, opinion issued by the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, Justice Sotomayor writing for an eight to one majority. So first of all, Matt, uh, welcome. Hello, Tom. Always good to be here. So this was a long-awaited decision. I think many people were concerned uh, about uh, the court perhaps completely eviscerating the uh, SEC's ability to uh, demand profit and disgorgement. But uh, you want to set up uh, kind of how we got here, and then uh, we can talk about the court's opinion. Yeah, sure. So the backstory to this is that uh, the plaintiff or defendant in the case, Mr. Liu, uh, he is a California resident, I believe, who was convicted of running a scam by the Securities and Exchange Commission where he built Chinese investors out of about $27 million. And uh, as part of the conviction and settlement, he was ultimately ordered to pay disgorgement. And he challenged the SEC's disgorgement powers. And this is a very sort of technical, narrow uh, issue here, is that the SEC does have the statutory authority to seek disgorgement in administrative proceedings. However, the law was unclear on whether the SEC could also seek disgorgement in federal court, which is where Mr. Liu's uh, case was ultimately adjudicated, was in federal court, not an administrative proceeding. So um, for a while, it looked like the the, uh, Supreme Court might move to say, no, disgorgement is not allowed under court proceedings um, because it is actually a penalty, not relief. And if it is a penalty, then that is not authorized under the statute after all. And there'd be an, basically there's 40 plus years of history where everybody just said, oh, yeah, this is a penalty, but um, this is uh, equitable relief. But the law was actually unclear. And that was the issue was could the SEC enforce disgorgement 
uh, in court proceedings. Now, if the Supreme Court had said no, then you couldn't disgorge proceedings from ill-gotten gains. Basically, that would be saying the SEC can't penalize people or take any of the money that they got from committing the the, uh, crime of fraud, bribery, um, any sort of scam like that. And it really would mean that, yes, crime can pay because you don't have to give up all of the proceeds you got from the crime. And so a lot of people were nervous about that. I think because it goes back to the prior Supreme Court decision a few years ago in the Kokesh case, where the court had said disgorgement is a penalty and uh, it has a five-year statute of limitations. And then they thought this might be the next logical step is that actually in court proceedings, you can't have any disgorgement at all. And wouldn't it be a big mess? Um, And everybody thought that right up until the actual oral arguments which happened back in March. And I think it's worth noting. So what did the SEC actually say in its 8-1 decision now was that the SEC may seek disgorgement in court, uh, but the disgorgement is limited to the net proceeds and profits from the misconduct. And every effort has to be made to return that money to the victims of the fraud. And that's what the decision was. The reason why I think this is not surprising is because this is an exact quote I'm going to give you from Justice Alito back in March when they were going back and forth and during oral oral arguments. He said, suppose this were limited to net profits and suppose every effort was made to return the money to the victims of the fraud. Justice Alito spelled out crystal clear. What if we had this sort of solution and various other justices at the time were grasping along the same directions, including some very liberal uh, justices like Elena Kagan were saying, well, you know, what if we try and make sure that there's some disgorgement? We can't blow this out of the water entirely. How about, you know, how do we get the money back to the victims? They were all going this way, except for Justice Thomas, who always seems to be dissenting over everything. But um, so I am not at all surprised once you actually read through the transcripts of the arguments. I mean, the justices were very clear that they were looking for a decision kind of like what Sam Alito had said, and that, lo and behold, is exactly what they ruled two days ago. So disgorgement is somewhat clipped, but the uh, disgorgement power does live. So in in reading the opinion, Matt, uh, it struck me as how what a common-sense decision this was. Absolutely, yes. as you articulated, the court said, uh, no, you cannot keep your ill-gotten gains. But yes, a regulator, in, this in the form of the Securities and Exchange Commission, uh, should not look to your total sales. They should look to the profit you garnered uh, as an appropriate amount uh, or for the uh, disgorgement. And they really blew through the technical legal arguments that uh, if you and I hadn't engaged in, I'd certainly engaged with others in about was this a penalty? Was it restitution? Was it equitable? Was it non-equitable? And uh, I guess I was a little surprised on just the common sense nature of the approach and that the court just eviscerated all of the sort of technical arguments about why the Securities and Exchange Commission had uh, no authority to do this because this was a penalty and not equitable relief. So I was uh, very pleased with that part of the decision uh, as well. So, Tom, here is one issue I do have. I, I have a couple of thoughts and questions, but this is the one that is probably nearest and dearest to most of our listeners' hearts um, is the FCPA and how this decision may or may not intersect with the FCPA cases we see. 
first off, I understand that the vast majority of FCPA cases settle and never really see the inside of a courtroom. Um, I also understand that for egregious FCPA cases, we're going to have the Justice Department involved, and they do have disgorgement and other powers, and you know they have other ways to turn the screw for a company to, to settle. But what was interesting to me is that at the time of the oral arguments, Justice Gorsuch brought up the point that there are going to be some misconduct cases where the victims of the fraud are not readily apparent. And the FCPA is one of those things. Now, I do think that the FCPA clearly, if you're violating that law, there are victims of bribery. It's just there are people who live in that country where they are getting substandard services because somebody bribed their way to a contract. There are other businesses that don't rightfully get a contract because somebody cheated. But that's not the same as what we had been discussing here moments ago, where it's about getting disgorgement to bring that as restitution for the victims. Well, like, I don't quite know. And Tom, maybe there's more details in the decision that I I didn't see here yet. Um, But I am curious about how we would square that principle with FCPA cases, assuming it ever did get that far. Like, there are no readily visible victims of FCPA, although clearly they exist and it is a crime. So I do wonder how that would factor in. I, I don't know if you have any thoughts. A query raised by the court, but uh, I guess my reading of it, Matt, was that uh, if that was uh, inappropriate or uh, they were not able to determine a class of uh, folks to return money to, whether that be investors or others who were damaged by the fraud in in the case of the SPA, the uh, briber and corruption, uh, that that would not uh, eviscerate the ability of the SEC or Department of Justice to seek uh, fines and penalties. It's um, in terms of enforcement. Uh, let me pick up on one point that you dead dead nailed on, which was that all SEC cases under the FCPA, other than l- literally less than one handful, uh, settle, and the uh, are, so they mm-hmm. go through the administrative process. And the SEC is not, I think, going to push. Uh, its ability to get more money than it could or should based upon this decision. I think it will uh, follow the law. And I think the uh, Department of Justice, uh, although you also correctly note it can bring other pressures to bear, I think they're going to generally follow these guidelines as well. I think for FCPA enforcement, it simply means that uh, the, the era of a multi-billion dollar, hundreds of millions of dollar settlement uh, may be lessened somewhat because many of those cases, particularly up until about 2015 or, or 2018 even, uh, the vast majority of fine and penalty was profit disgorgement. So we may not see those huge mm-hmm. numbers, although uh, with Petrobras uh, and uh, Airbus, that was, uh, I don't think, a, a significant portion because their uh, conduct was so egregious. But we may not see the the Siemens kinds of numbers back when Siemens was a thing and had a $1.6 total billion, $1.6 billion total fine between the United States and Germany, $800 million in the United States. So uh, I don't think it's going to lessen enforcement. It may lessen some pain at the end of the day. Uh, and it may uh, – actually, I was thinking that uh, there's probably going to be a new class of consultants who arise to uh, try to determine the uh, net, net profit – 
uh, of uh, ill-gotten gain of money secured through bribery and corruption, and perhaps they can uh, go off and have their own subspecialty uh, in FCPA enforcement actions. Well, I, I agree with most of that, although I have some thoughts about the nature of FCPA enforcement that are somewhat related to this, but you know, we'll get to that in a few moments. I did have a point I was also just kind of rolling around in my head is, yes, most of our listeners know and love FCPA enforcement, but we also do have other types of SEC enforcement that where would this come up a lot? Um, I could see that this is probably more applicable for investor types of fraud. So insider trading, uh, pump and dump schemes, um, probably misconduct that you'll likely see more coming out of broker dealers or financial firms uh, where investor scams really are more prevalent, Um, maybe some accounting fraud cases. And I am unclear on how much this would really be relevant for companies versus individuals who, if the company has, of course, followed all the best practices, you have volunteered to cooperate and you have Uh, turned over all the evidence for the individual wrongdoers, maybe this would never come up. But for the individual wrongdoers, I could see this being um, somewhat more relevant for them. But I suppose my questions, my biggest question is, if disgorgement is now confined to net profits from your scam, so the theoretical maximum of disgorgement might be lower than what previously might have happened. How will that change the calculus about whether SEC enforcers, um, the SEC itself, will they seek to do simultaneous proceedings in administrative and then federal court at the same time, pause the administrative proceeding, push the federal court angle for a while? Looks like that's going to go nowhere. All right, we're going to just drop the court proceeding and keep going back to our administrative proceedings where they can still get disgorgement. That's st- and st- statutory language is very clear there. So how will the SEC start thinking about how we're going to enforce these cases? Um, how will this maybe change the thinking of general counsels about whether to disclose some misconduct they know at all? Um, if the potential total damage is going to be lower, would that lead anybody to think, well, okay, in that case, I'm going to roll the dice, keep my mouth closed, remediate this, and hope nobody notices. I think that is a bad idea on principle, but I wonder if the potential disgorgement is lower, the potential pain is lower, does that going to make some people think, I can roll the dice and do this? And then third, I don't know if this is something that could happen or not, but I'm kind of curious for fraudsters themselves, could they actually in some weird perverse way be incentivized to come up with like a loss leader fraud? Like if you have no actual profit from the fraud, in theory, there is no disgorgement then, but you know, you're using the fraud as uh, I don't know, some sort of Avenue to build customer ties and then build legitimate business later on. I'm not entirely clear if that's possible or not, but you know, Tom, as I've said before, I, I look forward to the fact pattern that maybe would let us discuss this with a bit more clarity. Cause it seems so weird that inevitably something like that is going to happen someday. Somebody's going to test that. But those are some of the questions I think about is how is the existence of this standard going to change the thinking of the SEC, companies that are going to disclose, and the fraudsters themselves? I don't know if you have any ideas, but that's that's what's on my mind. 
Well, let's leave question three uh, to the side for a moment, because I think on questions one and two, I really don't think it's going to change the calculus that much uh, in terms of starting off with whether a company uh, will self-disclose or not. I think that there are enough incentives in place at this point to make that an attractive proposition uh, for a company. And if they were not going to self-disclose, but they did investigate, do a root cause analysis and remediate, I don't think the, the lack of profit disgorgement for sales is going to be the deciding factor. I think they'll just decide they want to, to ride it out and, and hope they don't get caught or hope they don't have another problem. In terms of how the regulators think about this, uh, I think that they will just continue to follow the same settlement procedure they have, which is to uh, have an order entered. The reason they go to, um, I think they go to federal court, is to have the cease and, uh, cease and desist order enjoining it and enjoining future conduct so that if they have to, they could theoretically come back. I don't think that an administrative law judge has that ability uh, to enter that, although uh, they could go to an ALJ. We have seen uh, certain SEC enforcement actions along involving the SEC, uh, FCPA rather, go the ALJ route. So they could certainly uh, do that. I guess it's a long-winded way of saying I don't think it's going to make that much difference. The other question that rolls around in my mind is one thing we haven't talked about is, you know, disgorgement, disgorgement, all podcast long here. We haven't actually talked about penalties, which are still a thing. The SEC does impose them from time to time, especially with FCPA cases when we see it. So I do often think that, you know, okay, even if disgorgement is clipped under various SEC leadership, we could see just plain old-fashioned penalties reemerge. Now, I don't think that we will see a lot of uh, SEC penalties with the current administration and Jay Clayton at the SEC. However, I also do wonder, like, let's not forget, there is a more than 50-50% chance that we will not have the Trump administration in power next January. Um, I definitely think that is a very real possibility that Democrats will be back in charge. Um, they may very well be running all of Washington if they retake the Senate. And the other question that I have is all of this issue is related to statutory language. Could Congress just change the statute to say, yeah, sure, the SEC can impose disgorgement as much as it wants? Um, because there is legislation pending in Washington right now to do exactly that and to repeal the Kokesh decision from a few years ago. So the statute of limitations uh, also goes out the window if this legislation passes. Now, I think in some alternate universe where the SEC shot down disgorgement powers, I think that sort of legislation would have been much more probable. But in our world, that didn't happen. So I am unclear on the state of that legislation. Would Democrats who are traditionally more have a bigger appetite for corporate enforcement, would they push that through next year if they are running all of Washington? Kind of makes sense, logically. Um, Or could we just see them revert to more monetary penalties if, you know, Elizabeth Warren is the Senate majority leader and Lord knows what she's going to do and who the SEC chair might be. We could see a very different approach to enforcement next year. And those are some of the other questions I think about that kind of spring from the Lou decision here. Uh, I don't want to end this podcast, but I want our listeners to focus on something Matt just said. Elizabeth Warren, Senate Majority Leader. 
You heard it here first, folks. Do not rule out that possibility. And I know that there are a certain portion of listeners here are probably breathing into a paper bag right now at that very prospect. But don't roll, rule it out that she could wind up in a very powerful position where she might be running the Senate Banking Committee. She will have enormous influence over things like enforcement policy. And consider that that is more than 50-50 chance that that could happen within about seven months. But uh, to uh, perhaps the more tangible questions you posed, uh, I think that uh, yes. I'd always felt like the SEC was was uh, informally giving credit to companies and not not uh, charging or setting high fines and penalties if they got equivalent or more in terms of profit disgorgement. So that if profit disgorgement is lessened because of the net profit component uh, to this ruling, that they could certainly go back and increase their fines and penalties. There's uh, pretty hefty fines and penalties under uh, the statute itself. And uh, clearly the Department of Justice can garner uh, high fines and penalties as well. Uh, It also... Uh, If the department works with the SEC, they can um, have additional penalties based upon the uh, U.S. sentencing guidelines uh, for criminal actions, which are generally not utilized by the SEC because it's they generally settle on a civil basis. So uh, I think we could have uh, a fair amount of play. Uh, both uh, with the SEC if it chose to, and certainly in a settled case, case settled with both Securities and Exchange Commission and the Department of Justice. I mean, I, I just think, you know, out loud here that for all of this that we are talking about, all of these forces that are coming into motion right now, we would be remiss if we don't consider the prospect that these forces will still be in motion in next January, and we could have a very different administration in Washington. And how will these things happening now, how would they exist under a Democratic administration, potentially a Democratic majority in both houses of Congress? And where does it go from there? A lot of implications for enforcement, a lot of implications for statutory changes, and um, how will corporate compliance have to respond to that? I don't know what the answer is. Maybe it won't happen. But nonetheless, we'd be foolish to ignore the, the possibility. Matt, that's a great wrap-up, and uh, I think a great way for end uh, this episode of Compliance Into the Weeds. So I look forward to seeing what next week brings us. Thank you, Tom. This is Tom Fox. Thank you for listening to this episode of Compliance Into the Weeds. If you have any questions, you can email Matt at mkelly at radicalcompliance.com. You can email me, tfox, at tfoxlaw.com. I hope you will join Matt and I again next week where we take up another topic and take a deep dive into the weeds of it. Compliance Into the Weeds is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being a loyal listener. And we look forward to visiting with you again. If you have a topic you'd like us to cover, please leave a message on the speaker app on the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.